Some of you may be um, aware that uh, last June uh, my dad moved in with us. Um, and uh, it's, it's, you know, a change in our household, absolutely, but it's a real blessing to have him there. And this December he turns 90 years old, 90 years old. Yeah, <clears throat> that's right. So you got to celebrate, you know, like what Brenda was talking about here. you got to celebrate. So we're going to go, uh, you, you know, pack him up, head off to uh, Minnesota. Uh, and uh, uh, we've got kind of a family reunion there where friends and family are going to be coming from all over the place. They're going to be uh, gathering there to celebrate his 90th birthday. And when we're, you know, addressing, talking about the topic that we're talking about today, it makes me think about that, you know, what, what we've got coming up there, and, and think, you know, what we're talking about today is kind of like that, where um, all these people come from north and south and east and west, where in, in that gospel uh, passage from Luke that Desiree read, it says this, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. We're talking about this, this time of celebration when Jesus returns. Judgment Day happens. Uh, we have that new earth, that new heaven. Everything is changed. And we get to sit down at this heavenly feast, and, and all these people come from all over to do that. Now, when you do that, when you, when you have, let me ask you this question. Have you ever had a family reunion that didn't involve food? Okay. I don't think that's possible. I, I, I think there's a law against it or something. I, I don't know. I don't think that's possible. Now, in, in, um, in, in our household, you know, Linda is a great baker. She's a great cook. As a matter of fact, uh, Brenda says that all she needs to do is lie on her back and just have somebody pour Linda's desserts into her, you know, just like that because it's so good. But as good as that is, you know, as Paul Anderson was talking about here last week, you know, at the heavenly feast, it's going to even be better because God is the cook. You know, and we get to look forward to this heavenly feast that's coming up. Now, as good as that is, the thing that I'm really looking forward to is, you know, some of what that gospel lesson was talking about there, that, that you know, all of these people of faith will be there. You know, the people that we get to sit down with, I mean, my goodness, to be able to talk with them about their faith journey, to, to talk with Paul, you know, to say, Paul, wow, you know, I can't believe it's really you, you know, and, and tell me, Paul, what was it like to, you know, bring the gospel, the good news about Jesus to people who had never even heard of him before? You know, where'd you get all that energy from? And my goodness, how could you possibly be stoned by the people of this town and go back in and tell them again about Jesus? How, where do you get that from? Or, you know, Matthew, Matthew, how in the world did, were you able to get those letters, those words of Jesus in red in your book? I mean, that's incredible, you know, what you did there. Or, you know, the best thing, though, is, is really the nameless people that you don't even know. You know, and you sit down with them, people that you may not know, but God knows. And God knows their names. And God knows their faith story and their faith journey that they now get to share with you. You know, these people were Sunday school teachers. These people were were people who gave faithfully to their church. These people were people who stood for Jesus in their workplace, you know. And there we are all gathered from north, south, east, and west, and Jesus himself is there. And it is the feast of the Father because the Father, the Heavenly Father, he's the host of the feast. And, you know, in Scripture what we can see is we can see kind of these, these foreshadowings of what that feast would be like. 
Jesus went to all kinds of different feasts. He went to uh, eat in, in the homes of the younger brothers and the elder brothers and, and tried to share with them about the good news about what God has in store for them, about forgiveness and God's grace and this prodigal, extravagant God. Well, there's one day uh, early on in Jesus' ministry when he uh, uh, went to a wedding. It was a wedding feast. And, it, and we know it really as the first miracle in the, uh, in the Gospels. And this place that he went to was this small, little, tiny backwater town called Cana in Galilee. And we don't know what Jesus' connection might have been to the family there. His, his mother was there, though. His disciples were there. We do know this, that Cana was a short distance from Nazareth where, where he grew up, where Jesus grew up. And also it was the, uh, the hometown of one of his disciples. So it may be that he was there because there was some kind of a family connection between, between his family and the family of the bride and the groom. Or it may be that uh, this was a connection through his disciple. We don't know. But what we do know is this, is that sometime in the course of that feast, in the course of that wedding feast, Mary noticed that something was amiss. Something was wrong. So she turned to Jesus and she said to Jesus, Jesus, they have no more wine. This is in, in John chapter 2. To which Jesus replies, Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time or my hour has not yet come. Now Mary seemed to feel some responsibility for what had occurred, and it seems to be this, this minor problem to us. I mean, why in the world bother him about this? And, and yet it was major in that setting, in that situation. And Mary, by turning to Jesus, understood that not only was, was this a problem that she could understand and that she could relate to, but also she understood that Jesus was the one who could solve the problem. He was the one who could fix it. He could take care of it. Now, these days, weddings are a big deal, right? They're a big deal. I mean, uh, weddings, I've, I've noticed this one, one thing about weddings here. Um, is that it used to be that the wedding season was the summertime. A lot of us here probably have got um, wedding anniversaries that are in the summertime. But now the, the wedding season has shifted to the fall. And, and this month, for example, we've got so many weddings here that this is the only weekend this month that we don't have a wedding in the church this month. They're just, you know, it's really just shifted to this time. And weddings, when you go to weddings, I mean, it is a big deal. There's all kinds of things going on. They're a great celebration. You've got the wedding itself, and you've got the dresses and the tuxes and the guests and the music and the gifts, and you've got the, the reception and the food and the dancing, and you've got all kinds of things that are going on to celebrate this, this great wedding. But in those days, it was an even bigger deal than it is to us today. In those days, they would celebrate for an entire week. The wedding went on for a whole week. Now, Sean, can you imagine playing for a whole week? You know, after a while, you're, you're saying, my fingers are about to fall off here. I mean, a week. At a small town like Cana in Galilee, this would be the event of the year. You know, not a lot of people that lived there, but those who were there, this was what they'd be looking forward to. They would come to this thing, to this, to this wedding feast that uh, was taking place at this location where Jesus was. And then, as now, the guests would bring gifts. But the gifts were brought not really to set up the household of the bride and groom. Instead, the gifts were brought to show honor 
Honor was a big deal in those days. It's, it's still a big deal. But what they would do is they would bring the gifts to show honor to the host of the feast and to show honor to the bride and the groom. And in exchange for that, the host of the feast, he was, he was expected to provide for the guests and for this whole week. And you can imagine the logistical problem that that presented. I mean, how much food are these people going to eat over the course of a week? How much are they going to drink over the course of the week? And, and, this, and, and, and if, if, the, if the host did not do this, if he didn't provide what the guests needed, then that would bring shame upon the host and upon the bride and groom, which is the last thing that you need at a celebration like a wedding. So by the end of the feast, but toward the end of the week, the wine had run out. And something needed to be done. So Mary turned to Jesus to ask him to intervene. She didn't want shame on the host and the bride and the groom. And what Jesus does points us forward to the feast that we have to look forward to. But first, Mary gives a great sermon to the servants who are there. She turns to them and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Great sermon. So the question is this, okay? Let's say that you are that younger brother. You've finally come to your senses. You're through slopping pigs. You have come home to the Father's table. Now what? Now what do you do? You do this. First and foremost, you just be. You sit in the Father's presence. You listen. You breathe. You be. It's like when Mary and Martha, that story of Mary and Martha with Jesus and Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, and Jesus says, Martha has chosen what is better. She is being. You know, the Lord has given us this great gift of prayer, and so many Christians really don't really take advantage of that gift. And when we do, when we do get around to praying, it's oftentimes us all doing all the talking, and God's supposed to do all the listening. And we can treat it like we do the rest of our life, rush through it, it's hurried instead of just sitting in the Father's presence and being, soaking in His Spirit, letting His Spirit prompt our soul, our heart, feeling His joy, feeling His presence, being guided by His Spirit, even in the smallest things in life, which many would regard providing wine for a wedding to be one of those smallest things in life. But God in the story demonstrates that he cares about even the smallest things in life, like wine at the wedding. Now, what do we do then? We do this. After being and establishing that, you do what Mary said. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. So you do. Not to earn your place at the table, but because you're already part of the family, but rather because you know that he's up to something good and you want to be part of that, whatever it is. You want to be part of it because, you know, something is going to happen. There's expectation here, and this is going to be good. 
So Jesus told the servants what to do. He said, there's some jars over here. I want you to fill them with water. Now, these were not just ordinary jars, by the way, because it's, they're described as being stone jars. And that d- differentiates them from the more common clay jars. And it was understood in, in the Jewish uh, belief that uh, you needed to cleanse yourself. And stone jars were an opportunity to have the, the cleansing water without it being contaminated as you would have if you had clay jars. So the, the, the stone jars were here so that the guests, when they came to the party, that they would cleanse themselves before going in. Because before you could come into this feast, you had to be cleaned. So he said, take those jars which by this point in time, after the guests had come in, they'd already gotten rid of a ton of the water because they'd already cleansed themselves. Fill them up, Jesus said. Fill them up. Now, I did a little research on this, okay? And here's what we've got, okay? Each jar, each of those ceremonial jars would contain 20 gallons of fluid, okay? And Jesus told them to fill them to the brim, which means that this sign, which is what John referred to it as, he didn't call it a miracle, by the way. He called it a sign, He said, this sign will produce over 120 gallons of wine. Now, how much wine is 120 gallons? I can't even wrap my mind around that, so I had to look it up. And what I found out is that with a standard serving, and it looks like somebody's been getting a a little wild up here, but um, standard serving of wine, you divide that into the amount of gallons that we've got, we've got 3,072 glasses of wine. Now, being that this is at the end of the feast that this is occurring, and we're trusting that the host actually actually provided a great deal of wine, and they just ran through it, at the end of the feast, how, how many of you can drink 3,072 glasses of, of anything, let alone wine, in a short period of time? Okay. How about if you had a bunch of friends over? Could you drink 3,072? Probably not, okay? So what what this means is that Jesus provided abundantly, more than the host really even needed. He was doing this this prodigal thing, this extravagant thing, where it's it's like what we experience from God ourselves, where when, when, when God provides, He provides in an extravagant way, an over the top way, blessing you beyond what you could possibly dream or imagine because he's that kind of a God. He's a prodigal God, an extravagant God. So the servants take some of this wine to the steward of the feast. He samples it. He has no idea where it comes from, but he samples it, and he's impressed. Now, I've never made wine, okay? Anybody here make wine? Anybody made wine? Okay. You can admit it. It's okay. It's good. All right. All right. Yeah, now, yes, Dave Collins, yes, you're a winemaker extraordinaire. How long does it take to make a good glass of wine, Dave? Two years? One to two years, okay. Jesus was expected to make it now. I would call that a miracle. John calls it a sign. Okay, and he brings this glass of wine that was made now to the host of the feast and says, I'm impressed. I give you honor because most people, most hosts, what they're going to do is they're going to serve the best wine first while people's palates still can tell the difference between good wine and bad wine. And they're going to save the cheap stuff for later because that way they don't have to spend as much. But not you. No, no, not you. Instead, you bring the best stuff last. 
And Jesus made it like that. Well, that's the thing, is that the best wine is saved for last. So fast forward to another feast. It's the feast of the Passover. And this is where the sign of the wedding at Cana points. The first thing. Jesus is there with his disciples. He is the host of that feast. And he turns to his disciples and he grabs a towel. And with this towel, he washes his disciples' feet. Peter says, no, no, Lord, there's no way you're going to wash my feet. and It's not going to happen. And Jesus said, Peter, if, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. Because only those who are cleansed get to sit at this feast. And Jesus is the one who does the cleansing. So he washes their feet and cleanses them for the feast. And then during the meal, he does something amazing because he takes the symbols that were there, the bread, the wine, and he uses them to explain something. He picks up the wine. And when he picks up the wine, he says this in, in Mark chapter 14. This is my blood of the covenant. This is the best wine that was saved for last. It's poured out for many, he said to them, and I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And he presented it to the Father, the host of the feast, by dying on the cross. And by dying on the cross, he gave the best wine, which was saved for last, for you so that you could be seated at the feast, so you could sit down at that feast that happens when he returns again and judgment day comes and we celebrate that Jesus is victorious. But Jesus told a parable about that day. And what he said was this in Matthew 22, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Now, why would they refuse to come? This is the king. This is, this is the king's banquet. This is, this is a wedding feast. This is a party. Why would they refuse to come? Because they were distracted. One had to go take a look at a field. Another one had to go inspect a cow. At things of this life that got in the way that seemed to be more important than the feast. So Jesus said that at some point, the wedding feast has to begin, which means the doors have to be shut. And when the doors are shut, he said that those who would not come will be outside in the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, 
here outside in the darkness, they can hear what's taking place inside at the wedding feast. They can hear the voice of the bridegroom. They can hear the laughter and the joy of the revelers. They can, they can hear the clink of the glasses and the silverware. They can hear everything that is taking place in there, but they themselves cannot at that point in time enter. They cannot come in. It's a little bit like I, I heard about... Um, the prison in, in uh, San Francisco Bay, Alcatraz, where it's out on the island, and one of the greatest tortures that the pr- prisoners said that they had was that they could hear across the bay, coming across the water, the sounds of life. They could hear people going to work. They could hear in the evening couples going out for a night on the town. They could hear all of those things taking place, but they knew that they couldn't possibly participate in any of it. But you can participate in this because the best wine was saved for last and it was shed for you. And the Father has reserved a place for you. So how do you experience that? by this. You sit down now. You don't wait. Because as the psalmist said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's present tense. That's not future tense. That's right now. Taste and see right now that the Lord is good. Sample that wine. Sample the bread of life. Sample what it means to be and to sit in the, in the Father's presence in all of life. Then when that day comes, you will be there because you'll already be seated. The Father has a place with your name on it, and He's been begging you to come in and take a seat. So welcome home. <laughs>